You are Locked On Bills, your daily Buffalo Bills podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. What's up, Bills Mafia? It's Joe Marino from the Draft Network, and I'm your host of Locked On Bills. Happy Thursday to you. We're doing herd mentality here today on the podcast because we didn't do it yesterday, and I really wanted to fit in my interview with Jamie Eisner taking a look at the Buffalo Bills through the fantasy football lens, and it was a terrific conversation. I hope you did not miss it. But today, we turn the control of the show over to you by me responding to your Buffalo Bills questions, takes, concerns, whatever you have regarding the team We respond to them each week here on Herd Mentality, and let's do just that. First one today comes from Vin, and Vin says, Joe, I'm hoping you can make me feel more optimistic. Last season, when the Bills tried running the ball, it got stuffed in the backfield quite frequently. It almost looked as if the defense knew the run was coming and right where it was headed to. I'm also well aware that the Bills' preferred starting O-line never played a snap together. Is that line supposed to make the issue disappear? Is this a personnel issue that maybe tipped the Bills' hand? Were people just missing blocks? So I think a few things contributed to some of those runs that weren't successful. First of all, you mentioned it, the offensive line combinations factored in. While the Bills' preferred offensive line never took a snap together last year, the middle three was very much a revolving door. Remember Brian Winter starting games and Ike Bakker having to come in for Cody Ford when he went down with a season-ending injury? Mitch Morse missed time. John Feliciano played three different positions in as many weeks. So while you had stalwarts at tackle and Dawkins and Williams, the middle three was very much a revolving door. I do also think that the shift in scheme affected this a lot, especially in the absence of a typical offseason. We've discussed this before. In 2020, the Bills' rushing offense skewed much more towards a zone run offense As compared to in 2019, it was a gap run offense. So they implemented a shift in scheme without having the typical offseason to make that happen. So I think there were some kinks to work out. And I think that is further evidenced in some numbers that I brought up a couple weeks ago on the podcast. When you look at the yards per carry from Moss and Singletary in weeks 1 through 7 compared to weeks 8 through 16, And that's not including the last game against the Dolphins because obviously Antonio Williams played a bunch in that game and it was just not necessarily a game where the Bills were their typical offense. But in weeks one through seven, Moss averaged 3.62 yards per carry and Singletary averaged 3.78 yards per carry. Both these guys less than 3.8 yards per carry in the first seven weeks of the season. In the next seven weeks, Moss averaged 4.6 yards per carry, and Singletary averaged 5.15 yards per carry. So a major, major boost. And so I do think that the Bills' run game issues got better as the season went on, which is a testament to not only the offensive line normalizing, but them having more time together in the scheme. And so I'm hopeful that with the offensive line being healthy, right, to enter the season, hopefully it stays that way, with Zach Moss, not being in his rookie season and having turf toe right away, with the scheme being further evolved and the personnel being more equipped to handle the responsibilities, I think all of those things working together 
will make for a better Bills rushing attack in 2021. So if you're looking for more optimism, that's what I would cling to. Now, Vin had a really good follow-up question that I want to get into. He said, if you have time, I saw you address on Twitter the catch made by DeAndre Hopkins that beat the Bills last season. I was hoping you might put your thoughts on the pod for everyone to hear. The Cards and Hopkins himself definitely seemed to believe that was their Super Bowl. Meanwhile, the Bills rolled on to the AFC title game after that. So I'll tell you what, I think the best example I could give is one that Chris Schubert delivered on the Draft Dudes podcast. He's our producer of Draft Dudes, and we were talking about the Hal Murray play, and he mentioned this, and so I don't want to take credit for this analogy, but it really made a lot of sense to me. And what I want to do is reference game two of the Western Conference Finals in the NBA this year, Suns versus Clippers. LA, the Clippers, they were up 103 to 102 with 0.9 seconds left. The Suns had the ball, and they had a chance to get a score to allow them to win the game. And so it's this inbound play where a perfect screen set by Devin Booker allowed for DeAndre Ayton to cut to the rim, and Jay Crowder had a perfect inbound pass to execute a tip-in, and the Suns won game two. They wound up winning the Western Conference Finals, and they're now in the NBA Finals against the Milwaukee Bucks. It was an amazing play. But it's a play that matters a lot more if the Suns go on to win it all. It will be an unforgettable moment in the Phoenix Suns run to a championship. If they don't beat the Bucks and they lose in the finals, it's going to be an overlooked and probably forgotten play. The Bills won their last six regular season games following the Hal Murray play. They won two playoff games, and they went to the AFC Championship game. Arizona went 2-5 and five the rest of the way and missed the playoffs for the fifth year in a row. I'm not taking anything away from the excitement of that play. It was an amazing moment for the NFL, and it's a play that should be celebrated. At the time, it sucked to be on the losing end of it. But there is nothing to debate when it comes to the aftermath. The Bills, under the leadership of Sean McDermott, used it as a turning point in the season, and they won on a big-time run to close out the year. The Cardinals, their season peaked in Week 10, and they failed to build off an amazing moment for them. So that's what I think about the play. It's a great play. I don't want to take anything away from it. It would be awesome to be on that side of a play like that. But at the end of the day, it was the peak moment in an 8-8 eight eight season for the Arizona Cardinals where they fluttered down the stretch to finish the season on a 2-5 and five run and miss the playoffs. The next one today comes from Justin who says, Joe, I listened to Answering the Tough Questions on D-Line today. Great podcast. Like you, D-Line play is my favorite. Listening to the pod made me think, and I really wished I would have asked this question. With Bean drafting Oliver High at pick nine, with the belief of getting their Kawan short, I get confused on why they have not invested in replacement one tech. I'm a firm believer that Star's absence last year was the biggest impact on the overall success of the defense. McDermott, Frazier, and Washington must have noticed not having an average or above average one tech hurt multiple levels of the defense. Everyone wants more at CB2. I think getting a good or great one tech would improve the defense more than a CB2. 
getting that huge plug in the middle of the line, allowing Oliver to really focus on impacting the game and freeing up Edmonds would have more impact than upgrading CB2. If the line can get to the quarterback faster, Wallace's lack of speed can be masked more. What are your thoughts on McBean not wanting to upgrade one tech or solidify it more? So I, I agree with you that they have been pretty measured with, with the one tech position. I do believe they got their guy in Star Latule when they signed him to a five-year, $50 million contract. So that was a pretty substantial investment right off the bat to get the player they wanted in that role. And then they also drafted Harrison Phillips in the third round in 2018. So they probably felt really good about having an established veteran that they like and know and star and then drafting a young player in Harrison Phillips. So in my mind, they believe that they had their mix of guys that they liked at one technique. So when you talk about them not being more deliberate about solidifying this position, I think they think they did. And obviously star opting out was not anything that anybody could have anticipated. Now, as you built on your question, you talked about the CB2 role. And I have to share something that my brother David shared with me a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about the Bills. He said, think about late season games or playoff games in Buffalo. The Bills are taking on the Colts or the Ravens, the Browns, Patriots, or the Titans, other AFC playoff teams or playoff caliber teams. It's cold. It's windy. Maybe there's some snow. Are you going to be more concerned about Levi Wallace at CB2 or not having enough at one tech? And I think that answer speaks for itself. David says, my take has to do with the thoughts you stated about Mitch Morse and his contract restructure this offseason. In my mind, I think it's possible that after the concussion he suffered last season and with his history of concussions in the past, Mitch, the medical staff, and the front office had a meaningful discussion regarding any potential future issues if he were to have another concussion. I remember during the season when he had the concussion, one of the talking points was how long he could potentially be out and whether he would retire on the spot. They could have approached him with the idea to guarantee more money up front and take less money long term due to the outcome of their discussion and with the front office experience with the sudden retirement of Eric Wood. You have stated multiple times that a retirement is the same as cutting a player when it comes to contract ramifications, and this solution would prevent future complications if the unfortunate were to come to pass. I believe that Morse's play on the field is still at an elite level, and when Feliciano filled in, his play was adequate at best. With those points in mind, and with, as you stated, the importance of the center position in the eyes of the front office, I have a hard time believing they would have approached him with an outright cut possibility over a fully fleshed out scenario due to his medical history. So that's a really well thought out question, and I understand exactly where you're coming from. I do feel the need to bring up something that Mitch Moore said in September 2019, and he was discussing his concussion history with Sal Marinara with the Rochester Democrat and Chronicle. And this is a quote from Mitch Morse. He said, when you look at the grand number of them, referring to concussions, you get over the fact that if you take care of yourself and I do everything the right way, I know for a fact that I'll be fine in the future. If it happens again, I'll be fine. And if it happens again after that, I'll be fine. You always wonder, but every single specialist I talked to said the outside perception of these things is kind of far off. I feel very confident that I'm going to be fine in the future. We've done all the tests you can do, and everyone was tip-top, and all the specialists said I'll be fine. 
Now, I don't know if anything has changed. And these comments were from back in September 2019. But he certainly didn't sound like a player that was a concussion away from considering retirement. So I'm not sure that I fully buy in that Mitch has this same level of concern that it seems the fans do, right? I think that talking point and narrative about him contemplating retirement or the fear that he could retire on the spot was fan manufactured. So just going off of what he said in the past, I don't have this level of concern. But the reality is Mitch Morse took a pay cut and a restructured contract to stay on the team or else he was going to get cut this offseason. It was a real thing. So something happened. And maybe the concussions were a big part of that conversation. But going back to those comments in 2019, at least from Mitch's perspective, he didn't have that much concern about it long term. The next one comes from Alex who says, I thought of this question while listening to the Tackling the Tough Questions podcast on the offensive line. With a re-signing of Daryl Williams and drafting Spencer Brown and Tommy Doyle, it seems like the Bills have given up on the idea of Cody Ford playing right tackle. I swear that when we drafted him, Bean had said he saw Ford as more of a right tackle than a guard. What was your take on Ford's optimal position and your pre-draft scouting report on him? And do you think the Bills are giving up on him playing right tackle too early? So for me, I recognize the idea that Cody Ford could have a better career at guard. But my perspective on it was for him to fail at offensive tackle first. Athletically, that's kind of the concern, right? People talk about his foot speed, and he doesn't have the quickness and the agility to be a right tackle. And so the natural progression is you kick him inside the guard, and those issues are minimized. But I'll tell you this, when it comes to athleticism and quickness and agility, there are far, and I mean far worse athletes in the NFL that are doing a fine job at right tackle. And one of them is Darrell Williams. Cody Ford is a markedly better athlete than Darrell Williams, so it's not just foot speed and quickness. For me, it was about value. If the Bills could have Cody Ford succeed at right tackle and be the long-term answer at right tackle, that brings more value to him being the answer at left or right guard. So that's where my thought process went. The value wasn't him being a right tackle. Let's see if he could do it. Now, I've said this also, I think it's really important at this point for the Bills to just stick with him at one spot. Quit shuffling him around. He needs to be at one spot, learn the position, and develop into the best version of himself at that spot. Learn the technique and nuance that goes into being whatever position that is. Presumably, that's left guard. And hopefully, he's been conditioning himself and getting ready to play left guard so that he can execute at a high level this year. And if he's not going to be a tackle, erase that off the menu. Let's not talk about it anymore. Don't give him reps at tackle. If he's your left guard, he's your left guard. If he's your right tackle, he's your right tackle. But quit the cross-training and let this guy develop. That's what I want for Cody Ford at this point. Bet online is the fastest and easiest way to bet on all your sports action. Baseball season is in full swing, and you can track all the action at Bet Online. Get all the latest news, odds, and info for all your sporting needs, including MLB, NBA, NHL, and the UFC. Before the next pitch, head over to Bet Online on your laptop or mobile device and check out all the great sporting news, sign up bonuses, and contest information. 
Don't sit on the sidelines anymore. This is your chance to get in the game. Head to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today and receive a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit when you use our promo code Locked On. Bet online, your online sportsbook experts. The next one today comes from Chris. He says, so I have a fun question for you next time you do herd mentality. You answered a question like this last year, and I found it super entertaining, so I'll ask it again this year. It's Sunday, September 12th at 1.05 p.m., and the Steelers have just won the toss and elected to defer. There's a buzz in Highmark Stadium as we are about to receive the kickoff. Joe Marino is pacing the sidelines, ready to unfurl his first series script. What would your first offensive possession look like? Play calls, personnel groupings, etc. All right, so I have I have three plays ready to go. And we are going to go hurry up, same personnel on the field for all three plays. Play one is 12 personnel. Moss is the running back. Hollister and Knox are in at tight end. And then Diggs and Beasley are your receivers. My first play is quarterback power with Zach Moss as a lead blocker and Morse pulling off tackle. So it's going to be a shotgun play. Moss is going to be offset to my right. If I'm Josh Allen, he's immediately going to go and pick up the first player that he sees off tackle. Mitch Morse is pulling around. Josh Allen is going to take a quick jab step to the left to create, hopefully, a false step by the linebackers and give Morse and Moss a chance to get going on the perimeter, and I'm running the ball with Josh Allen. Play two, same personnel groupings, but both tight ends are flexed. Both tight ends are running seam routes. Both outside receivers are running hitches, and then I'm also sending Zach Moss right down the middle of the field. Going to find the matchup that you like and rip it, and then my third play is going to be the same personnel grouping, and I'm going to set up a screen pass, and then we'll go from there. We might bring 11 personnel on, 10, I don't know, but I like those for the first three plays. The next one today comes from Andrew who says, if you were building a team from the ground up, would you make it a wide receiver-centric team? It's certainly exciting, but I think about how costly in terms of cap and space in the roster it is given you need so many dudes to keep things running smoothly, and that's got to be tough. Feel free to answer this from a stylistic preference lens as well, but I'm primarily looking at this from a roster construction perspective. So here is the reality of having a wide receiver-centric offense. The economic component of this is very, very poor because it requires, like Andrew said, multiple good wide receivers, and wide receivers are much, 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 much more expensive than tight ends. So let's look at some numbers. When it comes to tight end contracts, there are five tight ends in the NFL, a total of five tight ends in the NFL with a contract that pays them an average annual value of $10 million or more per season. George Kittle is tops at $15 million. So you have five tight ends in the NFL, a total of five that are over $10 million a season. And oh, by the way, that list was much smaller before this season when Hunter Henry and Jonu Smith got $12.5 million per season. Five total, over 10. When it comes to wide receivers, there are 27 with an average annual value of over $10 million a season. 17 of those are over $15 million, and several are over $20 million. So the value play is having an elite tight end 
because an elite tight end is $10 million less per year than an elite wide receiver. But what does this always go back to? Drafting. You got to hit on draft picks. You got to have economic players on rookie deals to provide substantial contributions to your football team. So if you can just continue replenishing your team through the draft, you're fine. Or pay older players. So you have your one guy like a Stefan Diggs, pay him all the big money. Then you have a veteran or two like a Cole Beasley and an Emmanuel Sanders who combined to make around, you know, 13, 14, 15 million dollars. And then fill in the rest with rookies, fourth round picks like Gabriel Davis, drafting Elijah Moore on day two. Take a flyer on Isaiah Hodgins late in the draft. You know, I like that idea because you still get away with playing the economic game, but you got to hit on draft picks. So I think there's ways to do it from the wide receiver perspective to make it work, but it, it is fair to say that it's more challenging and it's more expensive. And if you get an elite tight end and he's a focal point of your offense, like a Darren Waller or a George Kittle or a Travis Kelsey, there is a major value proposition that exists with it being more tight end centric. The next one today comes from Zach, who says, taking a step back and viewing the entire NFL, do you believe that this is one of the weaker pools of quarterback talent when week one kicks off than we have seen in the past couple of decades? The reason I'm asking this is because with the uncertainty around Deshaun Watson and Aaron Rodgers, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of elite talent at the top and not as much great talent in the middle, unlike what we've seen in the 80s, 90s, 2000s, and 2010s. Would love to get your thoughts. Zach, you might be onto something here. You know, obviously with Rodgers and Watson, there being some uncertainty there. We just saw Drew Brees and Phillip Rivers retire. Ben Roethlisberger is on the decline. Cam Newton is on the decline. Carson Wentz fell off a cliff. Jared Goff ain't what he was supposed to be. Joe Burrow got hurt. Jameis Winston and Marcus Mariota have not turned out to be difference makers in a positive way. Sam Darnold stinks. Josh Rosen stinks. Nobody outside of Miami Dolphins fans are convinced yet on Tua. Daniel Jones is meh. Dwayne Haskins stinks. Drew Locke stinks. Mitchell Trubisky proved to not be it. Paxton Lynch was terabad. Blake Bortles, Johnny Manziel, and Teddy Bridgewater, the first rounders in 2014, aren't good. 2013 was the EJ Manuel year. Andrew Luck abruptly retired. Jake Locker, Blaine Gabbert, and Christian Ponder never turned out to be franchise guys in 2011. So when you look over the last 10 years of drafting quarterbacks in the first round, there have been a ton of misses. Tons of them. And I think that has contributed to this landscape of quarterbacks that we have right now. But I will say that from watching football in depth for the last 20 years, I've always assumed and have learned for it to be true that about 25% of the league lacks a true starter. And about another 60% of the league is hoping that the rest of their team can be good enough because their quarterback isn't that type of guy that can be the primary reason why they're competitive every single game. So I think there's always been an issue of having enough qualified and talented and you know top-tier human beings that can play quarterback in the NFL at a high level to fill out 32 different starting opportunities. But this year, more than ever, it certainly feels like we are deficient across the league when it comes to quarterbacks. The next one today comes from Tony who says, 
Joe, you have no doubt watched all of Josh Allen's 2020 tape and have a good idea on his strengths and weaknesses. I heard the other day from Jeff Schwartz on the Go Long podcast that the Chiefs blitzed Allen's throwing hand constantly in the AFC Championship game. I also remember that Allen loved rolling out to his right frequently last season. Joe, if you are game planning for Josh Allen in 2021, what defensive schemes do you throw at him? What should we expect from defenses this year? So I do think one of the foundations of a game plan against Josh Allen should be you've got to contain him from his right. You have to make sure that your plan to keep Josh Allen inside the pocket and not allow him to get outside the pocket to his right is a cornerstone centerpiece of what you're trying to do. And if you are going to blitz Josh Allen from that side, which is a good idea, right? Attack his throwing hand and make it difficult for him to escape that way. You better not overshoot him. You better be able to stay disciplined and uh, not miss because he's going to make you pay. All of a sudden, you're playing defense with 10 guys now. So that's one thing that I would keep in mind, and I'd be leery of it. I've even said in the past that you shouldn't even try to tackle him. Just have a guy go out there and just kind of occupy that space and not run at him because he's so good at breaking tackles and making people miss that you're just getting yourself in trouble. But if you just have that threat of being outside of him, you know, it's a good thing. It's kind of like what the Bills have done when they play Lamar Jackson. They're very, very disciplined and controlled with their contain. And nobody gets too far up the field. Nobody's too deliberate about closing in and trying to, you know, sack him. It's just, hey, we want to keep you right here. We want to force you to beat us inside this pocket. So that would be a major principle of my game plan. And I probably play a lot of zone coverage. And I try to flood throwing lanes. I probably drop eight a good amount, to be honest with you. And I try to bring some zone pressures. And I probably wouldn't blitz him from his backside. Most of my pressure would be in his face and, and from his right. We talk about Bilt Bar all the time in this podcast, but did you know they have so many delicious flavors? They have coconut, cherry, raspberry, mint brownie, double chocolate, salted caramel, strawberry, orange, cookies and cream. There's so many good ones. My favorite is the cookies and cream, but I always love to pull a cherry or a raspberry or orange out of the pantry to mix it up. Maybe you want to try Bilt Bars, but you don't know where to start. Good news, folks. You can try a mixed box where you'll get two of each of the nine flavors so you can try them all. And not only are Built Bar flavors the best tasting protein bars on the planet, but they're healthy too. Check out these macros, 17 to 18 grams of protein. Calories range from 130 to 180. There's only four to five grams of sugar, only four to five grams of net carbs, and they all taste amazing. You want to check these out today. I've got a deal for you. Go to BuiltBar.com, use our promo code LOCKED15, and it'll get you 15% off your next order. Again, that's promo code LOCKED15 for 15% off at BuiltBar.com. Next one today comes from Chris, who says, as you tackled the tough questions regarding wide receivers last week, a common discussion point was brought up several times. How many receivers should McBean roster in 2021? Making a tough decision like that made me think, is it really necessary for us to give a roster spot to Taiwan Jones? When discussing versatility, you commonly say that Hodgins, Kumaro, Stevenson, Powell only have a path to the roster if they can significantly contribute on special teams. Why does the same principle not apply to a player like Taiwan Jones, who will never see the field as a running back? Seems like a wasted spot. It's a good question, Chris, but Taiwan Jones does contribute significantly on special teams. He played over 200 special team snaps last year, and he actually led the team in special teams tackles last year despite missing 
three games. He's a four-phase special teams player. The team loves his leadership and what he brings on teams. And so that's exactly why he does make the roster and why so many people feel like he is a lock to make the roster once again. Tyler says, We all know with the benefit of hindsight and being not even in the season that there is no judging a draft class until years in the future. And players like Spencer Brown and Carlos Basham could become very good pros, but with the Super Bowl window and, more importantly, the Allen rookie contract window as open as it will ever be, did Bean make a mistake focusing on so much depth that will take years to pay off versus using day two picks for legitimate starting candidates? So I go back to the reason why those picks were made was very much to maximize the Super Bowl window and make sure that you didn't ruin your opportunity by not having contingency plans in place. You watch NFL football last year, you'll see that Taylor Luan, all these really good offensive tackles got hurt, significant injuries. Taylor Luan with Tennessee, Ronnie Stanley, David Bakhtiari, both of the Kansas City tackles and Fisher and Schwartz, they were out for the year late in the season. Tyron Smith with Dallas, Isaiah Wynn with the Patriots. I mean, so many really good tackles were out for the year that Brandon Bean identified this and said, that's not going to happen to us. Look at what happened in Carolina with the Panthers while he was there, and this has continued on. The Carolina Panthers lost Jordan Gross, who was an outstanding left tackle for them for a number of years. He retired in 2011. Every single season since, the Panthers have had a different primary starting left tackle. They've never been able to get the position right. And so I think this is Bean learning from what's happened with that in Carolina, and what he saw across the NFL last year with all these really good offensive tackles getting hurt, that he prioritized offensive tackle depth and wanted to make sure that he didn't ruin the Bills' opportunity to go compete for a Super Bowl by not having sufficient depth at a premium position like offensive tackle. Furthermore, you look at Basham and Brown, and those guys are, and they should be viewed as eventual starters at premium positions. Between Jerry Hughes and Mario Addison, one or both of them are likely gone after this season. So between Basham, Rousseau, and Epinesa, that's likely your top three defensive ends in the rotation starting in 2022. Like we've talked about in the podcast, Daryl Williams at right tackle, you know he's, he's certainly a really good starter, and I hope he continues to be, but the Bills have built in outs of his contract every single year. So it's premium depth right now at premium positions with also the appeal of having developmental starters fairly soon. And when you talk about getting starting caliber players on day two, we have to remind ourselves that there's really not much room on this roster for rookie starters. And in a Super Bowl window, that's the way I would prefer it. These aren't the days of needing all three of your first three picks to become immediate starters for the team. It's a good enough roster where that's not necessary. So I think it's just a different lens that we have to look through the draft at because of where the Bills are in their life cycle. And quite honestly, this isn't a spot in a life cycle of a team that we've been a fan of in a very, very, very long time. The next one today comes from Drew who says, let's talk about offensive line play. How should our line be organized? The top priority for me is good pass blocking. Does that priority impact the run blocking scheme? Do the traits that make a good pass blocker correlate more with those that make a good gap run blocker, or zone run blocker. Also, how strictly should we adhere to our preferred scheme? 
do successful running teams always run one scheme or the other, or do they mix and match? Similarly, should we want all of our linemen to fit best in our preferred scheme, or do we want a mix or better zone blockers and better gap blockers to maximize flexibility? And I'll say this about the Bills offensive linemen in the makeup of the room. There are players that you would look at and say, yep, that guy fits a zone scheme. That guy fits a gap scheme. So the Bills absolutely mix and match their skill sets. So that's not always the case. You look at teams like the Minnesota Vikings, and they have a prototype that they like for their offensive linemen, where lateral mobility and the ability to reach and, and, and shuffle your feet and reach landmarks and, and those types of things are high priorities, where if it's a 320-pound guard, that's not even a guy they're going to be interested in. So some teams are more deliberate about staying true to a style of player to fit what they want to do, but then you have teams like the Bills that are much more willing to mix it up with the types of skill sets that they have on the roster. You look at a team like the Miami Dolphins where all of those offensive linemen are like 320 pounds, big mauling type guys, and a more finesse type player like an Ezra Cleveland or a Brian O'Neill or a Garrett Bradbury. Those guys aren't going to be fits for the style of offensive linemen that we've seen the Miami Dolphins bring in. So everyone has their style, but the Bills are very much a mix-match type team. Now, some core philosophy type things that I believe in. First of all, I believe it's easier to teach a guy to run block than pass block. Guys can get stronger, but natural ability to mirror, strike with your hands, play with extension with your hands, redirect your weight, they're more challenging. And those are traits that matter more for pass blocking. But when you look at the bill specifically, they are looking for a tough combination of traits to find. When I think about the players they've brought in or the way they talk about offensive linemen, they want guys with size, length, mobility, power, and a mean streak. So offensive linemen don't typically check all of those boxes. They're missing something. But the Bills are very much a team that wants all of those things. And so I do think they want to be more multiple with the way they run the football. I think they are willing to bring in a variety of of players that fit different schemes, and it's kind of a mix-match thing. And we'll, we'll see how it goes. The last one today comes from Darren, who says, I'm currently listening to a podcast that stated Josh Allen would be the number one guy that they would least like to fight in the NFL. Big props to our guy there. With that being said, which NFL starting quarterback would you least like to fight? All right, so I limited this down to four names as I considered all the starting quarterbacks in the NFL. And I have it down to Josh Allen, Justin Fields from the Chicago Bears. He'll be the starter in no time. Trey Lance, 49ers, and Cam Newton. And I eliminated Cam Newton first because I was quickly reminded of the Super Bowl against the Denver Broncos in 2015 where he fumbled the football and didn't try to recover it. You remember this? He like thought about diving in there for the ball, and then he like pulled back, and then he turned it over. That's a coward move. So um, had to get him off the list. And then Justin Fields and Trey Lance, I mean, they have a lot of size and athleticism. They're strong quarterbacks, but they're pups. We don't know what they're made of yet in the NFL. Josh Allen's the guy that had the bobbled snap against the uh, Dallas Cowboys, picks up the football, and wills himself to a first down, man. Like you see him 
putting Kyle Van Noy on his back. You see him stiff-arming Aaron Donald. Josh Allen is fearless. He's a warrior. He's competitive. And that's the guy that I don't want to see in the boxing ring if I had to take on an NFL starting quarterback in a fight. So Josh Allen is my choice for the quarterback I would least like to fight. And I'll be honest with you, I'm not sure there's a good case for a different guy over Josh Allen. So I'd be interested in hearing some feedback on that if you think I am off on agreeing with whoever said this on the podcast. All right, folks, that's going to do it for us today here on this podcast. Thank you so much for listening. As always, I kindly ask that you share, subscribe, rate, and review, and I look forward to catching up with you again tomorrow.